The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. I'm John Plunkett and the lack of theme music this week will alert regular listeners to the fact that, yes, we're doing a special edition. And I'm delighted to say it features the comedian, writer and TV presenter Dave Gorman. In this extended interview, we talk about the making of his new TV show called Modern Life is Good-ish and the tricky business of making great comedy and factual series without losing creative control. We'll hear from Mr Gorman in just a moment. But first, here's a clip from Modern Life is Goodish on Dave TV. Uh, and it's because of one of these that I spent Valentine's Day thinking about Alan Sugar. Because on Valentine's Day, I saw this tweet from the New York Post. The meanest way to dump your boyfriend on Valentine's Day. And then there's a link. I was curious. I clicked on it. And it led to this story. And as you can see, they got this story from their sister paper, The Sun. So I clicked on those links and I went to The Sun website. And as you can see, it is a story about an Amscreen digital advertising screen. You can see from the picture the, the gist of the story. It's about a girl who's dumped her boyfriend. It says, Dan, I'm leaving you for Gary. Your clothes are at your mum's, and I've changed the locks. Sorry to do this on Valentine's Day, Laura. Now, I saw this, and I might be wrong, but I immediately thought, this has the faint whiff of bullshit about it. If a comedian says, I was walking down the road the other day, no one goes, oh, he's talking about being outside. But if a comedian says, I was browsing the internet the other day, they go, oh, isn't he modern? He's but actually, they're the same thing now. We all live online as much as we do anything else. Like we, most of us use computers every day or smartphones every day. It's a part of everything. And it's a gentle backlash, as the, as the programme title suggests, against the kind of technology that kind of rules our lives now. Yeah, I don't, it, it's certainly not fuelled by any righteous anger. You know, it's not a young man thinking, I want to change the world. Why is the internet like this? You have to just find the nonsense that surrounds us funny. You can't possibly think you're big enough and strong enough and persuasive enough to change it. It's more mischievous than righteous, I think. And in the first episode, you take a look at Twitter and the way people use it and maybe the mistakes people make with it. And uh, also, perhaps get onto this later, but your peculiar obsession with Alan Sugar. I don't know if it's that peculiar. Is it <laughs> maybe peculiar? Maybe not. What I think is odd is... I, I was on a, a, a TV show on Sunday and I mentioned something about having seen a story... This kind of relates to the Alan Sugar stuff. Having seen a story in the newspapers, and it was in loads of different newspapers, and it was the most obvious nonsense. It was made up. It was transparently made up. There was no one who could possibly read it and think, oh, yeah, that's true. And it's clearly placed there by PR people. And I mentioned something about this on this TV show, and then two or three people were tweeting me going, why are you shocked by that? That's what PR companies do. I was going, yeah. I'm not shocked that that's what PR companies do. I'm shocked that the papers just print it. And I'm shocked that you just shrug your shoulders and go, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, my newspaper's got a lie in it. That's fine. (laughs) We've got to that stage now where the readership, the viewers, the audience are so cynical that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. I find that weird and funny. I don't... We should aim higher than that. Yeah. Shouldn't everyone, really? They should send the PR company back and come back with something more believable than that. Come on. It's not as if there's as much newsprint as there used to be. There aren't as many pages to <laughs> well, fill, so no, come on. absolutely. But it, it, in a way, it's, uh, you know, for, certainly for a lot of newspapers, the content isn't there to be um, enlightening. It's there to be entertaining. And if they think, well, people will enjoy reading that, they'll print it. That's just kind of not news. It doesn't, and, and that's what's going kind to of melt it away, that sense that there's a purpose other than what do people want to read? We'll give them that. 
And is that reflected, do you think, in, in people's wider use of technology and when they go on Twitter and just, I don't know if you touch on this, but the, the way that every, every spare minute now is absorbed by searching for stuff on Twitter and trying to fill our, 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 our downtime with, with some sort of activity, whereas before yeah. you might just have sat back and been a bit bored. Yeah, I was in um, Australia for a couple of weeks uh, last year and my wife was with me and... I was there for work, and and so we had got uh, the cheapest kind of pay-as-you-go mobiles, really, really primitive mobiles, just so we could communicate when I had to go off and do something and we could arrange where we were going to meet later and whatever. So it, it cost us like $10 for two weeks of being able to stay in touch. Sort of phone they used to buy on the wire and yeah, throw away. Yeah, and they, yeah. they were brilliant um, phones. One, you realise the battery lasts about eight days. Do you remember when your mobile phone used to live forever? And now, with all the use, we've regressed. Now our phones are worse at that one thing. But also, I'd come out of, like, I'd do an interview or something, and I'd come out and jump in a cab, and I'd send my wife a text saying, I've just finished, I'm on my way back to the hotel. There'd be 20 minutes of travelling, and I would look at the phone, like, every 10 seconds, like my habit had become get the phone out, have a look, I didn't have Twitter on it. It didn't. It wasn't capable of doing anything like that. The only person who knew my number was my wife, and we'd ended our communication. And I'm looking at it like a lost child. Go, go, go on, entertain me now. And I don't know what I used to do in a cab for that twenty-minute ride across town. I don't know what my brain used to do. And do you worry about sort of the impact it's having on you know everyone's psyche and, and our relationships now? Because it seems like we're in touch with more people than ever before, but we actually, in one sense communicate with people I think, fewer people than ever before yeah i think there's um, in the old-fashioned way this is true for how we interact with individuals and how we interact with businesses and i think a lot of it is to do with numbers having a metric on things so in an ideal world twitter would be a bunch of people being themselves but because you're so aware and you get so much feedback, it's not people being themselves, it's people representing what they think will be the most... We've sort of invented social capitalism, where we all want to be the biggest and most successful version of us that we can. Whereas actually, the most successful version of you is just, just you, just be you, and whoever likes you will find you, and that'll be fine. But I, I get emails from, from Twitter saying, you might get more followers if you posted more photos. I'm not here to get more followers. I'm here to be me. And if people want me to post more photos, they'll find somebody else who is posting more photos to fo- I don't need. It's not I don't get that. And everyone is doing that and businesses are doing that. Businesses will go, "We must have a website. It's very important we must have a website." And it probably is quite important that they have a website so they get one. But then they go, "It's got to be a successful website. What can we do to make it successful?" How do you measure the success of a company website? It's one thing if you're The Guardian where your product is right there on, on the website. I understand why you want hits. But if you're a dishwashing tablet manufacturer, your website probably is just there to give us some information. But they've now gone this, this route of saying, it's got to be successful. Well, let, let's take a bit of Twitter. Let's take a bit of Facebook. Put that on our website. Nobody wants to hang out at a dishwashing tablet website. That's not what it's for. If they go there, it's because they want to know the ingredients. It's because they want to maybe know the science behind it. They want to know how green you are. They might want to complain. They might want to know where to buy it. There's some really basic information. Put it front and centre. Help us to find that. And then don't expect us to hang out there. And Dave, further along in this series, you go on to talk about the comments that people leave at the bottom of uh, newspaper articles, which is, a, which is a, a topic close to my heart. Yeah, do you do you read them? Do you look at the bottom half of the internet or not? Oh yes, yes. Yeah, not not just because I'm professionally required to. Okay, I I think because I do think that there is 
uh, something wonderfully democratic about the internet. I, I genuinely love the fact that we all have a voice. The trouble with us all having a voice is that it's very noisy because everyone's speaking and everyone thinks it's about them. And it's a bit of a sop to democracy in many ways. The idea that you can have your say down here with all these hundreds of people and people go, hmm, 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 look at me, I'm on my soapbox. And, and I always imagine people puffing their chest down and thinking, rolling their sleeves up and thinking, right, I'm going to show them. And there's a lot of sort of barroom barristers spewing in those sections. Some of it rational, some of it irrational, but all of it lost, effectively. A lot of just, it's an echo chamber in lots Spe- of ways. Especially if you're comment number 300. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is a world where we've never been given more of a voice, but we've also never voted less. You know, so I don't know quite how one fuels the other, but I suspect there is some connection where people feel like, no, no, I've had my say. That's fine. And it feels like some people, they log on at certain news websites with a kind of right. What can I comment on today? And it's not, they're not inspired to comment by reading something in particular. They are looking as if it's their day job for the things that they should comment on. They're seeking them out. And so there's a thing, and I started doing it when I used to host a radio show, uh, I think called Found Poetry, where I would take these comments, and because they're written with this sort of pomposity, I wanted to find a way of, of, talking about them on the radio without just being a, a jock on the radio going, oh, have you seen this idiot? So I thought we, we did it by treating them with even more respect than they are craving. We called it poetry. We played classical music underneath it. and we, The only way of explaining what's in my mind when I'm reading it is that I'm always imagining I'm wearing a black polo neck. That It's that. <laughs> that it is that pomposity. This is my favourite example I can remember. Fiji became a republic something like 25 years ago. Two years ago, they decided they, they were no longer going to celebrate the Queen's birthday. And last year, I think they took the Queen off the currency and put local flora and fauna on instead. What could be lovelier than that? They are a republic. What is perverse is that for 20 or 30 years of being a republic, they still had a bank holiday for a foreign monarch. That's weird. And in amongst all these comments, somebody says, well, if you don't want the Queen on your money, you will not be wanting any of our money either, because that's got the Queen on it. (laughs) And this is my favourite phrase. The aid, if indeed we are sending you any, must stop forthwith. (laughs) You haven't even checked. You have no idea, but it doesn't... Like That's the keyboard warrior through and through, that sense of, I've thought it and I'm saying it, and the truth is no longer important. The important thing is that I thought it. That's not the important thing. And that was in your your absolute radio show. Uh, that's how you... they started right. on on the radio show. They're now in. There is one in each of uh, of Modern Life is Goodish as well now. So you were you were a DJ briefly, but you you don't do the show anymore. I did it for two or three years, and loved it. And I still miss it occasionally. There are Sunday mornings when I'm around thinking, "Oh, it'd be nice to be doing that." It was a lovely little conversation to have with people. But at the same time, I was a bit in danger of getting into a rut. When I did it, I was really committed wholesale to it. I did a tour, and most Saturday nights I was away, and every Sunday morning I was in there. We'd do Belfast the night before, and I'd be on some awful, awful morning flight that landing at Gatwick at sort of 7 in the morning in order to then get a train and a taxi, and and I would get to the studio and do the show. And I didn't want to take a a Sunday off. I always hated... The only times I missed the shows were when I was in Australia. 
uh, for a couple of weeks. I did it every other time. And at some point it was just becoming a little bit untenable to do them both. And I don't like to do it in a piecemeal way. I didn't want to do it where, oh, I'm going to take another four weeks off for a tour. And I didn't think I could carry on doing it where I was that committed either because it was I was not sleeping. And I needed to go and have my head go off and do new things. I was sort of feeling sated by it. I was feeling nice and full. And I felt my brain thinking, oh, that's enough. And I kind of, if I hadn't, and much as I still miss it, if I hadn't stopped it, this series wouldn't have developed and grown. The material that's in this wouldn't have come. It, it, it comes from a different part of your head, and I kind of need the variety. Well, well, well. I thought I'd heard it all. But I hadn't, because I hadn't heard this. <laughs> this takes the biscuit, and it's not a very nice biscuit. <laughs> Britain is no longer great. If I had the money, I'd emigrate. What about the other children around her? Have you been on a train or a bus or a coach or a tram recently? They're full of selfish morons blasting out their music. When, oh when, will you people vote for a government that will stop this kind of thing? If I've learned one thing about girls, it's this. If you give one of them an iPod, they'll all want one. And your TV shows, have you been, you've been on the box now for about best part of ten years since Are You Dave Gorman, I, th- I think? Oh, well, with huge gaps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, um, there are comics who have sort of always had a returning series and as one ends, another one starts. And, and you can see sometimes when they talk about it, they don't understand how people don't have that or if one is coming to an end they feel like that's their life is ending because but but i i I do that thing on on tv i've done two series in the early 2000s another two late on and and now they're like you know five series spread always with a good couple of years in between and my tours are never every year my books don't come out I, i i just sort of mess around and find my way i don't have a plan i always feel like everyone else has got a plan and i'm gonna i'm the idiot Healthy paranoia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I also like not knowing what's next. Great position to be in. Yeah, yeah. I just wondered how the um, how the TV environment has changed in that time. You know, I don't know. I mean, Dave TV didn't exist, for instance, ten years ago. Yeah, but yeah. Have you, you know, do you have more freedom now? Less? Uh, uh, do you sort of look around you and see what other comics are doing? I'm, I'm guessing there's a lot more appetite for comedy and entertainment out there now than there there was when you started. There does seem to be. I guess there is more pure stand up on TV, certainly now than when I, I started out the the normal pattern for me is is most of my stuff is stimulated by curiosity I want to know about something and so I occasionally TV people will say oh we'd like to meet you and talk about this thing and I meet them and either they've decided what they want me to pre- pretend to be curious about and I'm I'm not interested in doing that the number of documentaries that now have to be presented by a celebrity who has to start by saying I've always wondered I think you've never mentioned it. You've never once mentioned it. I've been aware of your existence for 40 years. I've seen you on chat shows. This has never once come up. What are you on about? Or I go in and say, well, I'll, I'll, I think there might be something in this. I'd like to find out about this. And they say, great, what are you going to find out? And I go, I don't know. What are we going to get for our money? I don't know. That's the point. I the point is I don't know what is around this corner. But how can we give you money to, if you don't know? 
Well, because if you don't give me money and then I go and find out, you won't be there and it won't have been on camera. Well, why can't we go and fake it afterwards? Because then it's fake. Like, and you get into these kind of circular conversations. And I, I don't resent them not spending the money at all. They are absolutely... TV is expensive. I'm not for one minute thinking they should definitely 100% back me. They are allowed to have their doubts and their fears and, and whatever. But there definitely seems to be more of that guiding things. Dave has been a really interesting experience because they seem to me to be very open about exploring different ways of doing it. For example, one of the things I did in the past, I would use PowerPoint on stage and they wanted some of that for a TV show. So we try and set it up. And then I get this thing where someone goes, the thing is, what's coming through your computer isn't broadcast quality. So we're going to broadcast it through this system instead. So instead of me pressing the button on a remote control, I'm pressing a button and instead of it firing the slide, it's turning a light on and then somebody else is seeing the light and pressing the button. So I do that, and it puts a split-second pause between the reactions of me pressing the button and the picture appearing, which is upsetting the timing of the comedy. And they could load them one page at a time on their system, and they could only put 16. And sometimes I, I click through, like, 30 pictures in 15 seconds, and they couldn't physically do it. And you just meet these TV people that go, oh, it's all right, we'll fix it in the edit. We'll fix it in the edit. Well, you, you can fix it in the edit, but you've ruined the timing of the thing on the night. TV audiences, sitcoms are one thing, but studio audiences for a man talking and making them laugh, they're not there to make the audience at home laugh. It's not there to tell the audience at home when the laugh is. It's there to tell the man who's talking when to shut up and when to start again. Like, your timing comes from playing a live audience. So the minute you screw around with that thing, oh, we can fix it in the edit, you've screwed around with something really fundamental. I don't know whether it's because it's cheaper, whether it's because the technology has improved... But in this show, I built all the PowerPoint presentations. Every single slide that you see on there, I've done. Every little video I've edited. Everything in there I've done. And I am controlling it. I've got a remote control in my hand. I don't know that the previous version was because of the technology. I suspect it was because TV doesn't like to relinquish control. They like to have their say. I don't do many panel shows. I do less than, a, less than one panel show a year. That's not, not my idiom. But there's many tales of them recording for three hours to make a half-hour show. And nothing, nothing that was said in the final half-hour of that recording is making the edit. <laughs> right. It, yeah. the, the air has gone out of the balloon. You know, it's nonsense. But there's a producer, someone go, no, we might get another bit of gold, we might get another bit of gold. And what they end up with is three hours' worth of ingredients, and then they go into the editing suite to cook it up into a show. Which is fine, you, you can make a TV show in the edit, but it, it's nicer to make a TV show on the day it's nicer to do that i like it when there's something making the audience laugh in the 55th minute because it reminds them of a thing that was said in the seventh minute you can't do that if you over record by three to one you, you end up losing anything that connects and you end up with people saying no no don't don't do that line because then if, if that first line doesn't work we won't be able to keep it so let's just do this instead and you hamstring yourself you have these people hedging their bets constantly People saying, well, let's do three versions of that joke and we'll take whichever one works, which is killing the audience on the night. Or you get people saying, oh, no, don't go straight from that into the ad break. We won't be able to know if that's right. So we'll just do it all and then we'll pick up some generic here of the ad break. It's all anti-television. It's all so frightened of doing it badly that we're going to do it averagely because that's OK. We're all right. We've got it. We've got what we need. 
and Dave were fantastic because they they understood. I was I sort of argued this case with them. I said, look, I want to be able to connect it. I want someone to be able to watch the whole hour of it and and have it be better because they watched the whole hour. Can we try and join the dots? And so we did our editing first. We did live shows, took them out to theatres, had someone with a stopwatch there telling me when I'd said, when this is on TV, I'll take an ad break right now. And then we'd come back. We're back and carry on. Did all the, this sort of structuring and had people going, you would need to move the ad break back. Okay, rewrite, do it again tomorrow. Did like four or five of those in advance of each recording. We'd already done the editing. We'd already done all that. We were then putting it in front of an audience and then pointing cameras at it. And there was one show where I think we only over-recorded 43 seconds. And in most TV shows, I think that would involve people being utterly petrified. <laughs> and in our TV show, it was a cause of celebration. We were like, brilliant, we, we did it. We almost got one bang to time. Now, Dave, I could be leading a standard conversational cul-de-sac here, but you, you mentioned some of the ideas that people pitched to you that you say, oh, I'm just not interested. <laughs> now, now, it wouldn't be the done thing to name the broadcaster, of course. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. can you give us a sense? Were there any um, you know, particularly uh, memorable the, no-goers? The one that's been pitched to me, I think, on four separate occasions is a version of Dice Man. And that's the, the Luke Reinhardt novel. Yeah, so the, but the idea, you know, very loosely connected to that, they would just go, we've got six options and we're going to roll a dice and you have to do whichever one it is. Every time I go, who's deciding the six options? How are they? It's not random. If we're choosing what the six are, I could have one go, let's go to Rio de Janeiro, and another one say, let's go to the Bahamas, and another one go... But you wouldn't do that. You'd say, number one is go to Rio de Janeiro, and number two is go to a travel lodge in Sheffield. But that's your choice. So it's not a show about randomness. It's, a, it's so manufactured, it just, it just makes me... It's, I can't bear the idea. I had one that was genuinely uh, pitched to me, which was me trying to find Osama bin Laden and you know obviously it wasn't pitched in the last couple of years uh, <laughs> it's going back a while and the opening page of the pitch document was Dave knows that uh, he spent some time in Afghanistan so he's going to meet some Afghan hound breeders to see if they can help him I was like you <laughs> Stop. Oh, no 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 it was sort of uh, it was the worst version of what people think I do and I know some people think that's what I do and I sleep all right knowing that some people think that's what I do. But if I was to do it and confirm their prejudices for them, I could not live with myself. And did, did someone try and do that? Did, was that a, a Morgan Spurlock film? Did he try and do that eventually? Uh, he did. Uh, something, I don't think it was because of something that had been pitched. I'm sure that's Morgan right, was, was making his own, own path in the world. But he did do something along those lines, yeah. And, and what's, Morgan, <laughs> what's, what's Morgan Spurlock doing now, anyway? He directed the One Direction film. How did that happen? That's weird, isn't it? Yeah, and he didn't even... Uh, and it was quite a straight-head documentary. Was it? Not that I can... I haven't I've seen it. it. There's a weird... You won't be doing that anytime soon. You know, you're not, uh, you've not been tapped up by... Um, I'm, take I, that. I'm not a film director. That's not my, not my thing. Weirdly, I know the man who directed the Justin Bieber film as well. Stayed was that more subversive? I don't know. I've not seen it. Right. <laughs> I, I might know him, but I don't think he would expect me to be fascinated by Bieber. No offence taken. There's a weird thing that, that seems to be happening as a cultural thing. I've heard the phrase second screen used recently to describe that. The people who are watching TV and tweeting and have got their iPad out or whatever. And it's responsible, no doubt, for a huge rise in, in, the kind of, in things like X Factor and whatever that... The target audience for that is surely sort of teenagers and and younger. Certainly younger than me. Yeah, and obviously it's being watched by the parents of those people as well. It's sort of Saturday night family viewing. I get all that. But there's a whole generation of sort of cynical 30, 40-year-olds who don't have kids who are watching it, who are sitting there being arch to one another on their devices 
and it's the same as that kind of that, that one direction film the idea that i should have an opinion about it i shouldn't have an opinion about it it's not for me i understand why you why it's funny to watch x factor but by the end of the series they're arguing about who should win these people who who are aloof and talking about oh look at his hair it's obviously manufactured isn't it isn't it terrible the way they by the end of it they're going well that person should win and if they don't it is a, a travesty you're not going to buy the record it's not for you it's just weird it's like it's i and they're sat on the sofa tweeting away but they're not actually talking to each other which takes us back to the start yes, about the breakdown absolutely. in communication yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just talking about personal experience here, of course. Um, but, uh, Dave, so um, Modern Life is Good-ish. Ish. Starts on, Dave, on uh, next Tuesday, the 17th of September. Tuesday, 17th of September at 10 o'clock. And should I, I should ask, finally, if you can tell us, what, what you're working on next? Uh, well, I, I, I don't know, because I'm writing something, and I don't know what form it's going to take exactly. So I'd like to find that out. I'd like to find that out. But, but I, I imagine I'll probably do some live stuff next year. And yeah, a, a book will come along. Did you ever write that novel? The novel you stopped writing when you wrote Google? Come on now. Whack. <laughs> no, I didn't. Right. No. Good to I, end on a positive. Google Work Adventure was, was, as a book, was a number one for a little while and, and whatever, which is lovely and I'm very proud of it. But it's a book in which I detail my hugely unprofessional attitude and the way in which I burned an advance and lied and cheated and didn't do some work I was paid to do. What happened as a result of it, because it was successful, is it built bridges as far as writing non-fiction, because people went, oh, no, that, yeah, he, he can do that. And it completely burnt bridges when it comes to, like, you know, who in their right mind would now say to their boss, I've decided to sign Dave Gorman up to write a novel. What, that man who wrote that thing about how awful he was at writing a novel? Like, I've, I've completely and utterly um, burned that bridge. Okay, well, it won't be a book, but we're waiting. Uh, we won't be a novel, <laughs> but we wait and find out. Uh, yeah. We look forward to it, whatever it is. Dave Gorman, thank you very much. My pleasure. Well, that's it for this week. If you're wondering what we did with the BBC payoffs row, then we'll return to that next week when we'll also have highlights from the RTS Cambridge Convention. Until then, my thanks to Mr. Dave Gorman. And Media Talk is produced by Mr. Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.